couple, we're continuing to talk in our series about how God weaves us together in our lives through circumstances, through gifting, about how when we come together. A few weeks ago when we talked about how, how we're better together than we are as individuals, uh, I talked about how the Power Rangers, they had to figure it out every episode that they're better together. And someone left this up here to remind me of that. So, so I thought I'd remind you. Uh, last week, this week, and, and next week, we're talking about what happens when the world, when our own mistakes, when our wounding of one another, when Satan tries to, to pull us apart at the seams. Uh, because conflict is part of all human relationships. Uh, it's been there from the very beginning. One of the first things that happens in Genesis uh, is that violence breaks through. Violence over jealousy, violence over competition. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I, I don't know if you're Enneagram people, uh, I'm a type 9, which is a peacemaker. And so I love conflict resolution. And it, it makes me completely exhausted at the same time. Like that's just kind of how I'm wired. Um, but it's so important for us to be talking about it. Um, I love doing premarital counseling um, because I know what's coming, and it's so fun that they don't. <laughs> and, and I get to tell them, here's what's coming, and, and give them tools to try and navigate some of those things that are coming. And, and so really, uh, premarital counseling is not about marriage. It's, it's fight club for people that are going to be in a lifelong cage match. Uh, I've got to coach them up on how to fight well, because the fights are coming. There's not a marriage that doesn't have arguments. Okay? Every marriage is a couple of people coming together uh, and agreeing to disagree agreeably for the rest of their life. That's, that's the terms of the agreement. Uh, so the better you are at arguing and the better you are at negotiating things and resolving conflict, talking about problems, the better your marriage is going to be. Um, and if you can get good at it, the better your kids' marriage will be if you can model and teach them some of those skills. And so today we're going to be talking about peacemaking. We're going to be talking about practical peacemaking. Uh, Jesus' longest sermon takes place in, in Matthew 5 through 7. It's on a, a hillside or a mountainside. And he begins it with a, a series of blessings. And one of those is, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And if you and I are going to take the claim that you and I are children of God, then we need to have the practical skills of being peacemakers. And a lot of times we mix up peacemaking with being passive. And they're not the same. Being passive lets you just say, uh, I'm not going to worry about it. It's not my problem. It's not my business. I'll walk away. Being a peacemaker means I see a problem and I'm going to help resolve it. I will make peace where there is right now conflict. Where I see division, I am going to actively seek to bring about unity. Doing the work of making peace is not being passive and burying our head in the sand like an ostrich and hoping the problems go away. Peacemakers will be the children of God. And when we look at the Gospels, the ultimate example of peacemaking breaks through in every page of the Gospels. We see over and over again that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He calls his followers to be peaceful and not seeking revenge. To be the kind of people that turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. The people who give forgiveness 77 times, not seven. 
Uh, Arlette, I love the, the cartoon you posted this week on Facebook and it kind of tagged after the sermon where the apostles sitting there going, man, not only do I have to forgive 70 times, seven times, now I have to do math and math is harder than forgiving even. <laughs> and uh, there's just this incredible call over and over again in the gospels in Jesus's life where he teaches and calls us to and demonstrates incredible making peace in a world that desired to have conflict with him. In Colossians uh, chapter 1, the passage that was read earlier, it says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, talking about Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Anytime when we ask the question, this is one of my favorite Bible classes uh, to do from time to time, is to ask the question of a group of, of believers in Jesus, why did Jesus die on the cross? And someone will say, well, to save us from our sins. And you write that up on the board, and now you go, okay, good, I need 10 more answers. Because Scripture has that many answers about why Jesus died on the cross. He died on the cross to save us from our sins. He died on the cross so that we might have eternal life with God. He died on the cross so that the separation between God and us might be closed and the Spirit can dwell in us, no longer at a temple that is visited. All of these reasons. But one of the ones that comes up several times, especially in Paul's writing, is that Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood to end divisions between us, to bring peace to where there is currently violence, to bring unity to where there is currently division. And so when you as a Christ follower choose to allow division and conflict to exist in your life, you deny one of the gifts that Jesus gave you when he gave his life. This is that core and central to being a disciple of Jesus Christ that you be committed to doing as much as you can like he did to bring peace into a conflict-riddled world. And so we've got to be about it. In Ephesians 2, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, <clears throat> For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus killed so many enemies on the cross that day. He killed sin. He killed the law, which was binding to so many people. He killed death, which is the final enemy. But he also killed the hostility that exists between men and women that are made in the image of God. He killed the hostility that divides people on our human interest and unites them in this cross, which was, was part of God's plan to bring unity to the brokenness. And so we, if we're going to claim to be children of God, sons and daughters of God, we need to become people who bring peace into the world. We actively make peace through practical means. And we're going to be looking at a, a, a set of tools today that's I'm using the tools from Peacemaker Ministries. 
It's a ministry that's a Bible-based ministry that looks into how do we respond to conflict. And they've come up with 12 possible types of, of response that people have to conflict. And they've put them on an arc. They've put them on uh, an arc that has uh, the best ones are in the middle and the worst ones are on the sides, the extremes. Uh, you can see them here. I don't know how much you can read them, uh, but I'll tell you all about it as we go here. Uh, what you have in the middle are the good, healthy, peacemaking responses. So at the top you have negotiation, reconciliation, and overlook of other people's uh, harm that they've done to you, overlooking things. Those are healthy approaches, but they move towards escape responses. You see, when conflict comes up in our life, when things go wrong and relationships are breaking, we fall instinctively into our base responses of fight or flight. We either want to, to, to fight our way through this and get what we want, or we want to run away and hide. Those are our, our base instincts. And there's healthy flight responses, and there's unhealthy flight responses. There are healthy fight responses, and there are unhealthy fight responses. And these are all found in different ways in Scripture because and it shouldn't surprise us. Scripture describes all of life, and conflict is always present. So over here, negotiation, reconciliation, and overlook are the healthy ones. Unhealthy are denial, flight, and suicide in the most extreme escape attempt from conflict and suffering. Uh, going at the top, moving towards the attack responses, you have mediation, arbitration, accountability, and then the unhealthy responses of assault, litigation, and murder. And you might think, well, that's kind of extreme. But it's what we see in Scripture. It's what we see in the world, isn't it? We see people unable to deal with these things in healthy ways, and they then resort to the unhealthy ways. And so we're going to begin at the top with the, the most ideal ones, and then we're going to slide down the arc over here towards the escape side. So we're starting with healthy uh, escape and moving to unhealthy escape as we consider uh, every situation, every circumstance where you're in conflict, you can choose one of these responses. But you need, I think the more we talk about them and you're aware of them, the more you will own your response and the less be a victim of your response. And the more that we can own it, the more we become practical peacemakers in a world that's filled with anxiety and conflict and anger. So the first one is negotiation. In Philippians 2 and verse 3 and 4, uh, Paul writes, he says, Rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Paul has this vision that the church could become a community of people who, who like Jesus, and this is in the context of him saying, be like-minded with Jesus Christ in how you do this, that if you and I are completely in the, doing things in the interest of one another and not of ourselves, we could become a family unlike any the world has ever seen. And it's so easy for us to say, well, wait a minute, if I'm always putting the interest ahead of yours ahead of mine, who's going to look out for me? And the answer there, if we can all become the church that Paul dreams and prays that the church can be, is that if I'm looking after your interests, whose interests are you looking out for? Mine. 
I don't have to be selfish in my desires because you're so selfless that I know that you and I have enough to go around because we're looking out for one another. And so when you're able to do that, you're able to go into a negotiation. And generally in conflict studies, negotiation is considered a small win, but not a big one because both people come out with an outcome that is less ideal. But in a negotiation where I have your best interest in mind and you have my best interest in mind, what we're really doing is creatively working together to solve the problem in a way that meets all of our needs and desires. And so negotiation becomes this effective way of putting the needs of others ahead of our own. And after uh, negotiation, the next one over on the list is reconciliation. This is where the relationship between you and I has become strained and broken because something was done in the past, and we need to be reconciled. We need to be made right again in our relationship with one another. And Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, this was the one where he talks about how peacemakers are the children of God. Later, he's in the sermon, and he says, listen, if you are, uh, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Jesus, how important is it that I be reconciled to my brother or sister in Christ? And he says it should take greater priority than your offering to God. If you're offering something to God and, and holding a grudge... If you're offering your gift at the altar to God and you're, you've wronged your brother or sister and, and you haven't worked it out with them, you haven't apologized or given forgiveness, God wants you to pause your offering and go work out your relationship with your brother or sister. And then come back and give your offering. Now, does that mean that if you don't want to forgive someone, you should just quit going to church until you finally decide to forgive them? No. Do the forgiving, do the reconciliation, put in the work, make it come together. Do the healing stuff that needs to happen. But sometimes the reconciliation work isn't necessary. Sometimes the, the circumstances of, of the offense uh, can just be overlooked. And so overlooking is sometimes a strategy. Now, there's, the next two are overlooking and denial. One of these is healthy and the other is unhealthy, and sometimes it can be confusing to figure out which one is which. In Proverbs 19, it says that a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. There are times when we're in an argument with someone and they may not even know that they've hurt us. And it may be that the thing that I need to do to repair the relationship is not go start a fight with them that they don't know we're in. It might just be that I can say, you know what? Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. I can give away this offense. I can overlook this for the sake of my relationship with them and my relationship with Jesus. I can just give forgiveness freely. So often we withhold forgiveness over little things that we let fester and fester on and on. Uh, in Alpha a couple weeks ago, we were talking about uh, the lack of forgiveness and holding a grudge and not forgiving people. And, and they said that it's doing that. We think that we're hurting them by us having a spirit of unforgiving uh, in our hearts. 
But doing that is really like me drinking poison and hoping it hurts you. Doesn't that make sense? That, that I'm drinking into my body anger and a grudge and animosity and frustration and all the weight and the, the harm that comes with that, and you're just living in, in oblivion. And I act like I'm wounding you. What do I need to do in this circumstance? Well, if it's something that's serious, I need to go up into the other responses of negotiation or reconciliation. But if it's something that I can just release, I can just forgive you and move on with my life, and move on with our relationship. But the unhealthy side of overlooking is denial. And denial is really where I've got something that I've done wrong, and I don't want to deal with it. Where I've hurt you, and I don't want to talk about it. Uh, we see this in 2 Samuel, the great story of, uh, of David and Bathsheba. The story where, where David looks down and he sees Bathsheba and he decides that he wants to have her, so he takes her. And after he does that, he sends her home and he's in denial that he's done nothing wrong because nobody knows about it. And then she's pregnant and she sends word to him that she's pregnant. And, and so he is still in denial that he should have to take responsibility for this. So she, he calls her husband home from war. He says, hey, uh, just go take a couple nights with your wife. Uh, I'm sure my cover story will emerge. But it doesn't. Uriah is not willing to go into his wife while his co-soldiers are still out on the battlefield. And so eventually David says, fine, go back to the battlefield, sends him with a secret note that says to the general, make sure I die in battle. And Uriah delivers his own death sentence unknowingly to the general who then sees that it's carried out. And then it goes back to David. And then we have this passage here. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David is living in complete denial about all of these things he's done wrong. And it requires a prophet to come and tell him a story that reveals to him the horror and the evil of what he's done to get him out of his denial. When we're in a conflict, pretending you're not and just staying in it is extremely unhealthy. Don't live in this place where you're denying your problems, where you're denying the problems of someone you love and care about. Get in to these healthy responses and do the work because denial is not going to get you there. No one has pretended their way out of a serious problem before. You've got to do the work. Moving further into the unhealthy side of things is actual flight. It's running away. Uh, it's when you get into a problem and you decide that you're going to actively hide from it. This is when you're in an argument with your spouse and then all of a sudden you're going for a walk. This is when you get an argument with a coworker and you just make sure that you're never in their side of the building at the same time. You physically remove yourself from the person, from the relationship, from the problem, so that you don't have to think about it. Out of sight, out of mind, right? Now that's passive, but it's not peacemaking. Now there's times that you may be in a serious, intense conflict and for a moment you need to de-escalate by getting some fresh air, by getting out of the room, by, by locking that door uh, so that you don't you know, 
tell your kids everything they're doing wrong and give yourself a few minutes in a quiet bathroom before you come back. But the purpose of your removal needs to be to resolve the situation. The best chance of us resolving this argument is taking two steps back so that here in a few minutes, we can, or in a few hours or at a time that we agree on, we can take a few steps back and then move out of unhealthy running away, out of unhealthy uh, anger, and into healthy types of working through stuff. So don't just run away from your problems. Don't hide from your problems. It didn't work. How long have humans been doing this? Yeah, Genesis 3, right? And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Um, you guys remember the game Marco Polo? Where one person yells, Marco, and, they've got, and they're blindfolded, and someone else says, Polo, and then they have to try and tag them blindfolded. Um, God is undefeated at Marco Polo. You just need to know this. He's never, ever lost. And so there are times in your life where you're caught up in sin and conflict and you're trying to hide from God. You can't do that. When God says, where are you? Why haven't you been praying to me? Why haven't you been going to church? Why haven't you been genuine in your relationship with me lately? And, and you kind of just go, I'm hiding. He knows where you are. And he knows why you're there. Flight doesn't work with God, and it doesn't work in our relationships with other people either. And so the thing that we need to do if we are the people of the cross is stop running from our conflicts and move towards the people we've got problems with. It may be after a little season of calming, but the calming needs to be with the purpose of moving back towards them, not long-term moving away. And the final one is this. Uh, the final one, and it's the most extreme version of how we experience escape or flight, is suicide. There are people who become so convinced that the only way out of their crisis and their conflict, and they've lost all hope in ever coming through a resolution on the other side, is to end their own life. And I just want to tell you right now that this is never God's solution. It's never God's solution. And some of you and your families have been affected by people who've got to this point of hopelessness or got to this point uh, of, of just kind of a lack of, of being able to deal with their own uh, issues and demons and mental uh, struggles that they were going through that they thought this was the only way out. There's a story of this in, uh, in 2 Samuel where a guy named Ahithophel was uh, someone who was in the business of giving wise counsel and advice to kings and rulers. And when he saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his hometown. And he put his house in order and then he hanged himself. And so he died and was buried in his father's tomb. The ultimate escape is when someone has lost all hope. And I just need to tell you right now that this is never God's plan for you. If you're someone that, that is considering this or has considered this in the past, you need to know that God has a hope and a vision for you to come through this season out of the valley of the shadow of death to get back in the green pastures by the still waters. And whatever crisis you're in, the good shepherd is there with you. But even more so, not even more so, but in addition to that, so is this church and so is your family. 
And if you're in a point that you need to be thinking about these things, reach out to us and let us kind of bring you back into these healthy ways of moving through this season of conflict and get out of that so that you don't have to consider the worst of things. Because God has better things in store for you. And it may be that if on your own, kind of going down this curve that's towards escape and that's towards flight, that you haven't been able to to sort that out on your own, then then a lot of the solutions that come on the other side, the side of of moving towards uh, attack, are, are more actively good and they involve other people in helpful ways. So as we move back to the top of the arc, Uh, you'll see we're now coming back over here to the uh, attack side, but the healthy side of attack, which is kind of attacking the problems with more people is what's happening on the healthy side. And so it starts out on the healthy side of being active and engaging with the problem with mediation. In Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching and he says, listen, if one of you is in a problem, in a conflict, you're caught in sin. If they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is mediation. Mediation is where two people just can't negotiate it out by themselves. And so they could choose, I guess we'll just break up and end our relationship here. Or maybe we can get a mediator. We can get another brother or sister in Christ who's wise in this matter and bring them in and get their counsel, get their feedback, help them or get them to help us listen to one another, to be able to work through this. When you allow conflict to fester, uh, it gets worse. But when you get someone else involved, uh, where two or three gather in Jesus's name, he says, there I will be also. Mediation makes good on that promise and invites our brothers and sisters into helping us heal the relationship. Now the mediator, in mediation, the mediator doesn't come in and say, I have a judgment, I declare the solution is this. Um, That's not the mediator's job. The mediator's job is to guide the involved parties as they continue to maintain the responsibility for solving their problem. But sometimes through mediation, that doesn't work. Uh, there's just an unwillingness to listen, or maybe the, the, the conflict is so real that your point of view and my point of view may not be fully compatible. And the, the Christian uh, healthy way of resolving that at that point is to go into arbitration. To go into arbitration. And, and this is kind of a legal term, but it's something that's done differently in the church than it is in the courts. You see, in the courts, uh, you go to arbitration before you go before a judge to see if you can uh, give your side and work through it. And, And finally, as you work through arbitration, the arbitrator can say, hey, listen, here's the plan that both of you need to agree to. Are you willing to agree to this or not? And it's still designed to hold the relationship together while having someone who has the authority to be a judge between two people. Paul talked to the church in Corinth about this, and he says, Therefore, if you've got disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? Paul says, don't go to court. Get a wise Christian to be the judge between you. Don't go get a a pagan to settle a Christian argument. Get a Christian who believes in Jesus, who believes in God, who who knows what Scripture is all about, and have them be the wise one who rules between you. And then you agree 
in advance and at the end, whatever this wise Christian decides for us, we're willing to abide by that. This is the role that peacemaking ministries actually plays in in the lives of Christians and churches. Uh, And they say, listen, we'll come in as a disinterested group that has been immersed in biblical conflict resolution and help you sort this out. But you agree to do what we say rather than going to court after this. So as you move through the healthy, the last one of the healthy on this side is accountability. Accountability. Uh, Jesus talks about accountability in Matthew 18 when he says, uh, What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go look for the one that wandered off? Isn't that such an incredible image? The shepherd leaving the ninety-nine to go find the one that wandered off and to rescue it and to bring it back. It's incredible, but that really fails to take into consideration how hard it is. Because when the shepherd finds the sheep, he just grabs it, picks it up, and hauls it. It's extremely heavy. This is extremely difficult work, but he takes the sheep back. But relationally, it's a very different thing. When someone gets mad at me and something I say in my preaching or my teaching and they leave this church, I'm not allowed to go kidnap them and bring them to church next Sunday like the shepherd does. (laughs) I knew that on my own. No one had to tell me that I'm not allowed to do that. What I have to do is what Jesus talks about uh, a little bit farther down. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And this is a hard teaching. But there is this idea that Jesus desires us to do the relational work of taking seriously the lostness of a brother or sister. That we go pursue them. That we try to persuade them. That that we take seriously the consequences of sin. and, And that we do the work of trying to use the healthy forms of conflict resolution to bring our brother or sister, the lost sheep, back into the fold. And that brings us to the unhealthy responses on the far right side of the ark. We have assault, which happens in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul is writing about the experience of his ministry. Now remember, Paul's story in Acts starts with him assaulting Stephen. Because he didn't like what Stephen was saying about God. He didn't like what Stephen was saying about the Messiah. And so he held the coats while other people assaulted and even eventually murdered Stephen. Paul was ready to go on mission trips early in his life, not to try and persuade people to be followers of Jesus. He was going on mission trips to throw Christians in jail and oversee their abuse. That was his first mission trip. He got sent out to injure Christians and Christ followers. And now here at the end of his ministry in 2 Corinthians, here's what he writes. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false believers. Why? Because I didn't like what he was preaching about. And so they assaulted him over and over and over again. 
If we become people who don't like what others believe and we are assaulting them as a result of that, we are more like Saul in the beginning of his life than we are like Paul at the end. Violence is not the answer. You do not win someone to Christ by threatening to beat them up if they don't get in the water. You're not going to solve the problems in your marriage if you use your fist. Your problems will get worse, not better. The next unhealthy one is litigation, taking people to pagan courts. Jesus says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. If you've done something wrong, don't, you don't need the courts to settle this. In 1 Corinthians 6, that we were talking about earlier, Paul lays out an argument that Christians should have wise enough people in the church to sort out their stuff. When Christians take each other to court, and sometimes it is necessary, there's one or two times Christians go to court in the New Testament, sometimes that's all that's left, but it is always going to end in the, the destruction of that relationship. You've decided there has to be a loser, and it's going to be one of you, and the relationship will be broken after that. Uh, but what Paul is saying is, listen, when Christians take each other to court, what it tells the world is that you don't have anyone wise enough among you to settle your stuff. And it tells them that you don't actually believe this die to yourself and be alive to Christ stuff. It denies your testimony that you are like this Jesus you teach about. So he says, don't do it. While it's sometimes necessary, it doesn't heal, it doesn't restore, it doesn't reconcile. And the final extreme unhealthy response is murder. James chapter 4, James is writing to Christians in a church. And he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, connects anger with murder. And we're like, man, doesn't that seem drastic that anger could be that close to murder? James connects it to jealousy and, and to my desires being over your desires. And he says, because you don't get your way, you murder. And you think, I, you know... It's a pretty big gap between being mad and murder. But every single person that gets murdered today is getting murdered by someone who closed that gap. And we live in a world with increasing violence and gun violence and, uh, of all kinds against people you know and people you don't. Why? Because we haven't been doing a good job of the healthy type of re resolving conflict. Well, that's out, that's out in the world. Well, you know who else is out in the world? We are. And the angry ones are winning right now. Why? Because we're, not, we're being passive instead of peacemakers. We need, as, as individuals, as families, as, as churches, to get out in the world and be the makers of peace in ways that become salt and light, that the peace starts running and, and ruling and reigning over this world, and the anger and the anxiety and the fear get toned down. 
I'm so tired of Christians. This, I need to, this is the end of my sermon. You're going to get a 10-second rant here. I am so tired of Christians saying, if that happens, it might be time for a civil war. I'm tired of it. If you hear someone say that, look at them and say, you tell me which of your neighbors is ready to be killed. Because that's what it would be. It would be neighbor versus neighbor. And we say those little things, and we think, it's the thing we're saying, it feels like the temperature in the air and the temperature of the world. Well, it's time that we push back, not advance that agenda. By being the makers of peace, the speakers of grace, the bringers of love, the ones who say the Jesus way is not the violent way and the Jesus way is not the escapism and the flight way. It's getting in and doing the work to bring solutions where there is only chaos, bringing order and peace to a world that's full of anxiety and frustration, of being a church that, that brings love to anger. Church, I believe that Jesus is telling the truth that if his people will do that, that will become salt and light, and that the world is filled with darkness and has never understood the light, but the light keeps breaking in. Right, there's more to come next week. It's ironic that I'm angry about being peaceful, but here we are. <laughs> God is good. And today's been amazing. Today's been amazing uh, from the baptism to begin to the, the worship and the remembering. Uh, I hope that you've been blessed. And I hope that as you go from here, you become someone that seeks to bless others through bringing peace into the world. This morning, if you need to respond to the gospel of peace, you may come forward as we stand and sing.